My name is Kyra, and I'm first-generation Ghanaian-American, raised in Texas, raised on the East Coast, glazed in Spain and Latin America, and based out of Brooklyn. Join me as I interview extraordinary human beings from across the globe as we discuss all the stories we share through comedy, agony, and curiosity, of course. While this podcast interview with Catherine was recorded in November 2019, pre-DACA and pre-COVID, the topics we discuss are still very relevant today. Hi, so we're here today um, interviewing Catherine, um, who's going to give us a little bit of background about herself and her story and how she got from where she is to where she is now. Um, Catherine, let us know. Talk to us. Well, thank you, Kyra, for having me here. I'm very honored to be part of your podcast. Um, as Kyra mentioned, my name is Catherine Mascara, and I lead communications for Maersk, which is a global logistics um, and shipping company. I came to this country when I was shy of 10 years old. I then decided to go back to Colombia to start my undergrad um, at 18. And I was there for two years. And I studied at Universidad de Externado de Colombia. For those of you who uh, know that school and are familiar with Colombia universities. Um, and then I came back to the States and I transferred to Rutgers University where I finished my undergrad in uh, marketing and I did a concentration in supply chain management. So here I am now leading communications for a global company um, and English being my second language, (laughs) Spanish my first. And I could never look back and say that I would have done anything differently because I think my what makes me unique and what's brought me to where I am today is exactly where I was born, exactly the reason why I came here, and is exactly why I made the choices that I made, given the context and given um, the way that I was raised by immigrant family and by um, Colombian standards, so to speak, <laughs> and then going back and revisiting my roots and getting grounded again to who I was and who I really wanted to be. So that's, that's essentially who I am yeah. <laughs> and what's brought me here. And so tell me, um, for people who do not know, why did you leave? Like, why did you leave when you were 10? Why did your parents feel the need to take you? So like many million, uh, millions of children around the United States, I didn't really have a choice, right? I was nine years old. I, um, at that time, my family was going through very difficult times in terms of just economic well-being, safety, well-being, safety was the most important piece. Mm. And really just like many immigrants that leave their country and their world for something better and a promise of a better future, um, they wanted that for me and they knew that they couldn't have it in Colombia. So uh, essentially when we left when I was nine years old and arrived to Miami, Florida, I was told that, you know, this was just a new way of being. It was a new, exciting adventure that I was going to meet new friends, that I was going to learn a new language. And I was so, I just remember being so excited, but not really knowing why we were leaving. I didn't actually find out until much, much, much later why we left. And it had to do with a lot of things, right? I mean, not just the economic standing of Colombia, the safety issue. Uh, but also the opportunity piece. I mean, my parents really wanted me to have bigger and better opportunities than they ever had. 
And there were successful entrepreneurs in Colombia. My mom owned her own veterinary hospital. My dad owned his own uh, uh, designer, engineering designer firm. So I guess, you know, they don't even exist anymore because it's outsourced in China. But he used to design all of the the uh, signs for the biggest banks in Colombia. And he used to travel around the country and, and provide them. <laughs> Uh, with layouts and, and uh, proposals on what they should be or what they shouldn't be. So very successful individuals giving, you know, the, the space, the socioeconomic space that Colombia was in at that time in the early 2000s, um, they felt that it just wasn't the country that was going to give me my space to really grow and be not only successful, but I think most important to them that I was going to be safe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you speak a lot about, um, you know, the various push and pull factors and your, your family was doing very well. So it must have been really difficult for them to move when they had this, you know, they had their own entrepreneurial businesses, they were doing well, and they decided that this is not a place where we find that our child can be safe and can really grow. That's yeah. a lot. Was yeah, it, mm-hmm. yeah. We put safety above above economic well being because I'm sure that if we would have stayed in Colombia, we still would have been okay in terms of finances. Um, I think what was most important to them is that they grew in a place where they weren't worrying about a bomb going off down the street, or that you know a man wasn't going to come to us with a knife because we had gold jewelry, you know, Mm. we were wearing a gold bracelet or because they saw our cell phone or, you know, that's, that's essentially the world that we live in. We were just, we're living in fear Mm. and it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't acceptable for them anymore. So they decided to actually give up their businesses, their successful businesses, despite, you know, despite being able to perhaps provide for me in, in, in Colombia, because, because of the safety issue and because it was so dangerous walking around the city of Bogota, because it was so dangerous, you know, just going outside and feeling like you were safe. It just, you know, that fear ran our lives and it ran everything around us and they didn't want that for me. And I certainly was too young to experience it in the depth that they did for many years. But even today, you know, my dad, is so cautious when leaving, uh, you know, the house fully locked, all doors locked, everything locked, you know, cars locked. And now we live in a town in Jersey that is probably one of the safest towns in America. And he still is obsessive about locking everything down, making sure that I watch my surroundings, that I don't talk to strangers, that I'm always alert, always, you know, looking out for something that could happen. And I can only imagine, you know, growing up in that world for so many years for them and then stepping out and coming here and having to start all over. Ooh, and can you talk to a little bit of that? Because I think that many people can relate to, you know, that learned anxiety, the absorbed anxiety that happens when your parents come from a different culture and they deal with all these stresses and you're, you were there as well, but you were younger, right? So they've seen it from an adult mindset and you are now like growing up in a different culture and so you also have this different perspective um, of how to assimilate. Like how, how did they feel? Like 
it's traumatic to have that happen to you. You having all these access to all this, all these things, and feeling mobile and successful. And not that they weren't successful when they came to the states, but feeling that they didn't have what they had before. Yeah. No, they had to start from zero. I mean, it's just, it's just how it was. They didn't have the language. They didn't have the advantage that. I did, right, coming in very young, being able to absorb the language extremely quickly, mm -hmm. and then growing up in this culture and really being able to establish my network rather quickly, they didn't have that advantage. So they worked in retail jobs, they worked as limo drivers, mm. as bartender. My mom um, went to nursing school, so now she's a nurse. Um, but still, you know, coming from owning your own businesses, being extremely successful, in the areas where they went to school with and being highly educated. I mean, my mom is a doctor. Now she's a nurse mm -hmm. for a very small, tiny clinic in Asbury Park, New Jersey, helping the homeless and, and doing a lot of work that it's essentially free that mm. other people won't do. Mm. And my dad right now is a limo driver. And yeah. what's interestingly enough is that he's a limo driver for the former building where my company was based. Mm. Wow. So he would have been the one driving me from the train station to my work. Mm. Wow. And where I'm, you know, sitting in the leadership, you know, team of that company. And I have my dad, who is the person that drives all the executives and people back and forth from the train to, to the company. So it's just, it's really crazy how life takes you to all of these, you know, different scenarios. But it's a choice that they made and they'll never... They tell me they'll never regret it mm -hmm. because of where I am today. Exactly, and that's the and that's so important because I know. Uh, I mean, I, I think you know as a parent the sacrifices you make for your child because you want her to have access to the things that you didn't have access to, maybe, and and to have this other sense of community and and, and growth. But it is it is on the backs of our parents and our and their parents and their parents' parents yeah. <laughs> and, and, and recognize I haven't it. even told you the story about my grandmother. Oh my She's a bigger superhero than my parents. Oh my goodness, <laughs> can't wait. So it's just, it's so crucial because that story, you know, it's one that I can relate to with my father and his various careers and, and my mother and, and then being able to pick themselves back up from whatever situation they've encountered as very educated people, um, but having things, whether it be illness, whether it be a shift in their career, which they decidedly changed, that has like affected them till now, you know, and it has, has made them maybe not in the most affluent place that they wanted to be or what they expected to be earlier on in their life. And, and life takes us so many different places. So, I mean, it's important for us to re realize that like immigrants come from various backgrounds and they do various jobs to, to, to live. You know, whether it be they're by themselves or they have a family and everyone sees these people, whether they be limo drivers or any or they be um, bartenders or anything that they're that it's less than as opposed to more than. And I think that's so important to understand is that and we're going to take the jobs that people aren't going to take. They're not taking the jobs from others. They're taking the jobs because those are openings, they're opportunities, and that's what they're going to take, and they're going to make sure that they do it and, and do the best of their ability, or not, because everyone's different, but I, I find that very important um, to, to state. So going back to what you mentioned, you said that your, your grandmother was an even bigger hero, so a family of heroes, <laughs> do tell, do tell. So my grandmother was 16 years old when she had her first daughter. Oh, wow. 
she was then 18 when she had my mother. Wow. And then she was 21. No, I'm sorry, 18. And then she waited 10 years. So she was 28 when she had my aunt. Wow. Uh, the first two were from the same father. Mm -hmm. Alcoholic. Mm. Abusive relationship. Uh, she was obviously too young, right, to be with him. Um, but even despite being so young, without any education, because I think she probably got through elementary school. Mm. Um, and then after that, she actually taught herself how to read and write. Uh, coming from a family of 13. Ugh, yeah. And she was the oldest one. And the one that perhaps was the least wanted because her mom was the one that left and she was left with her father. Mm. And then her father remarried and that's when he had 12 other children. Oh, so she was the outsider. Wow. Uh, so despite all of that, and they lived in poverty. And when I'm telling you poverty is extreme poverty. I mean, I still go back when I used to go back and visit my great grandfather's village outside of Colombia. His roof was made out of plastic. And probably 15 people were living in that in house, house of cement walls that they built themselves, of roads that you could barely get through because there was no pavement. <laughs> but he had, he was the happiest man in the world. And so is my grandmother. I mean, she's just the happiest person in the world. And, you know, despite all of that, you know, being born into poverty, not being able to go to school, Maybe elementary school. And again, I mm. don't quote me because I really don't know if she even went to school. Mm -hmm. I do know that she taught herself how to read and write. And despite all of that, she put three daughters through college in Colombia to one of the most reputable colleges in the state. And one of them, two of them came out as lawyers and one of them came out as a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. And she did it on her own. She left, so going back, she left her husband when she was 18, 19, and then she went to work as a waitress. And every job, you know, she would work, you know, 20 hours a day, would have to lock her kids in her little tiny one-bedroom apartment in Bogota. They had to teach themselves how to cook and how to clean and how to take care of themselves because her, their mom was working, mm -hmm. trying to make a living for herself. And then through just working hard every single day of her life, she finally became a manager of a restaurant. Mm. And then after the manager, then she became manager of multiple restaurants. Mm. And then that's how she kind of lifted herself out of that space and then put her three daughters through college. Mm. And because my mother was one of them, then my mother brought me here and then here I am, you know? And it's all full circle. It's just, I, I know my strength comes from, from my them. grandmother. Yeah. Exactly. Every time I think I can't do something, I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. how was my grandmother able to do it at 18 years old and raise two little girls that depended on her and just work her butt off because she knew that she needed to provide for them and she knew that she had a dream for them and that she knew that they weren't going to live in poverty like mm -hmm. she did. They were actually going to have an education. That's impressive. And it's amazing. It's amazing. And during that time, did your grandmother move within Colombia to like a different? No, she stayed in Bogota her mm -hmm. whole life. She's still there. <laughs> <laughs> She's still there holding She's it down. She's still there. She's still holding it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and in terms of... <clears throat> and she's still supporting almost half her family. Wow. Yeah. Indirectly and directly, right? I mean, all of them are still in 
pretty rough situations and they all look to us for help. I mean, every time I go back, it's like you bring clothes, you bring yep. whatever you can yep. to help them. Yep. But it's, it's really sad, but it's really admirable too what a human being will do for having a different future mm -hmm. and not having the same future that they see around them. And that's so crucial because... Like, I've only been to Ghana once, and my parents are both from there. But when I did go, I, I went with money. I went with clothes. I went with all mm -hmm. that. And they were like, you have to come back and give. Like, that is, they will expect it. But also, like, you should want to give back to your brethren and support them in, in every yeah. way. And it's, it's so great to hear that because I feel like I haven't heard that story in a while. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, when they go back, you know, they go back to their families, and it's very... But they'd be very, like, cushy or comfortable. Um, yeah. And it's definitely not that situation for me in Ghana or it is for a lot of friends. So it's nice to hear. Not nice, but reminds me of the fact that we all have. We're extremely lucky. Yeah, we're very, very blessed. I lucky. think we, we saw uh, uh, stats today that, mm. you know, I think it was on our group chat that Sean had sent. And I actually saved it because I want to, I think it's, like, so perfect for this. So if you have food in your fridge, clothes on your body, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you're richer than 75% of the entire world. Absolutely. If you have money in your wallet and can go anywhere you want, you're among 18 of the world's most wealthy people. If you're alive today and healthy, you're more blessed than the millions of people who will not survive this week and die. Mm. And if you can actually read and understand this message, you are more fortunate than the three billion people in the world who are blind, deaf, or illiterate. Mm. Life is not about complaining. Life is about thousands of other reasons to be grateful and happy. It's... Every time I travel and, and, and meet people and talk to people and have these conversations about where they're from or... I realize how blessed that is, and 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 not. I'm not spiritual. I'm not in any of that. I'm, I'm more. Well, no, I am spiritual in terms of like you know the world and connectivity in that ways. But I realize that the life I lead is a life that I was able to lead because of people before me, and and my parents and their grandparents and all the sacrifices that are made, and that it's not just. It is my life to lead, but it's a life that I always have to be remembered that there are other people who did things to get there. You know, and it's not a sacrifice. No, no. You know why? Because you know it's full circle. My grandmother lived with me for four months when my <laughs> daughter was born. Yeah, and this is the grandmother, the one that I'm telling you about, mm -hmm. that you know brought herself out of poverty with two children and alone. And she looks at me, and she's just, she's so fulfilled. Mm -hmm. She's like, she doesn't complain about anything. I'm like, does anything hurt? No. Yeah. Do you need anything? No. I was like, so what do you need? She's like, I am just happy to be here. Mm -hmm. She's just like, I am so blessed. And I thank God every day that I'm here, seeing you being a mom, raising this little daughter, having it all, being happy in your marriage. is like, this is what I envision for your life. So, you know, when I ask her, it's like, would you have done anything different? She's like, no, because it brought me here. Like, mm -hmm. this is perfect. This is what I wanted for all of us. And she even says, she's like, I wish more people in our family, you know, really leverage what our generations have been able to build up to. Because I think we just forget, we tend to forget everything that happened before 
what led us here. But I think if we we started to remember and actually honoring what happened and honoring the generations that got you to where you are today, that creates a space of gratitude and it creates a space where all of a sudden like your interactions with your family and just your life in general is just a miracle. Mm. Like mm. I look at Penelope, she's a miracle. I look at my life, it's a miracle. I look at my mother's life, it's a miracle. Like mm. just life is a miracle. And we just tend to like just get stuck in these stupid stories about, mm. you know, what if I could have more or less yeah. or you know, all of these conversations that are around such materialistic, fake things that we've created to keep us quote unquote happy. But then when we actually look at life and we look at the things that got us to this point today, I mean, it's, it is perfect. It's, mm. it's perfect. But I do have to think that we went through so much adversity in our lives. Because I, I mean, even in my lifetime, I didn't have it very easy. Mm -hmm. You know, and going back to Colombia was extremely difficult for me. And a lot of the things that I grew up as being a child of an immigrant and not knowing English in the beginning and the jokes and the sayings and the mean words that were said to me, all of that stuff I'm actually thankful for because it's made me a stronger person and, and I have a lot tougher skin and I'm able to stand up for others mm -hmm. as well when I see it happening. So I'm, I'm happy that all of these things happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy that, not happy, I just shouldn't say it that way, but I'm, I feel blessed that we had all of these experiences in our lives and we're able to pass those learnings mm -hmm. from generation to generation so that we can build a better future. Mm -hmm. and, and in terms of, um, you talked about like how kids treated you. Tell me about moving from Colombia at 10 and coming to, you came to Jersey? Yes. What well, was, um, Miami first and then New Jersey. Okay. So Miami for six months. Okay. And what was that like? Because Miami is like Spanish speaking for a lot of parts. Yeah, most half parts. of my friends were Colombian, so I didn't learn any English. English. <laughs> I was Fair. like, oh, this is mini Colombia. This yeah. is great. <laughs> awesome. And then when you came to Jersey, what was that like? And, and how was the assimilating to like, um, people, school? Elementary school was great. Mm -hmm. I have to say, my elementary school, I was the first immigrant child to mm -hmm. arrive. So they all treated me like I was an alien. Like, mm. actually, like, outer space alien. So they wanted to be my friend. Oh. <laughs> because okay. they, they didn't understand the concept of immigrants. Okay. So it was great. They all wanted to be my friend. They all wanted to sit with me. Mm. And um, then going into high school is when I started experiencing more of that animosity. And also, look, I, I may have dodged a lot of bullets mm -hmm. because of the way that I look. Mm -hmm. And I know that. Mm -hmm. I'm very self-conscious about the way that I look. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have that, I don't know how it would have been. I don't know if it would have been better or worse. I don't know. What I do know is that, you know, being Latin American and not speaking English occurred to others as being almost like you are attacking their language that you know this this precious thing that they've known for their whole lives and if someone comes in and says it differently or has an accent or says something funny it's almost as if they are attacking the core being of their existence and what they've known to be right their whole lives 
So I see that now, but back then I didn't see it that way. So when someone tried to correct me or someone started poking fun at me or I'll remember, I'll never forget this one instance where I was just learning English and I was in this, uh, I think it was like history classroom and <laughs> the teacher was talking about blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden she said thing, like the word thing, T-H-I-N-G. And I stopped and I asked my friend in front of me and I said, hi, what is, what's thing? And he looked at me, he was like, a thing, you know, like a thing is a thing. And then all of a sudden, my, his neighbor started getting into the conversation and then he was trying to explain to me what a thing was. So, but how can you explain what a thing is without using the same word? So all of them, all of a sudden I had like five or six children around me trying to explain to me what a thing was. So they would point at the paper. Paper is a thing. Pencil is a thing. You know, the table is a thing. This is a thing. And I'm like, and I just didn't get it. I kept feeling so small. I felt so small and so consumed in, in this noise that all of a sudden I felt, I actually felt dumb. Like I felt like I wasn't getting it and everyone was getting it except for me. And then all of a sudden I, you know, once that stopped and then, you know, they just realized, they came to terms that they can't explain to me what a thing is. And then the classroom bell rang and then everyone left. And I was just sitting there feeling so empty and so dumb and so just powerless. And I went home and I cried for three hours. And then I finally opened up one of those dictionaries, the English to Spanish dictionaries, because we didn't have Google back then. And I looked at the translation and it said thing, cosa. And I was like, oh my God, it was so simple. Like this whole time, it was such a simple world. And then in that moment, I told myself, I will never be humiliated like this again. I will know every word in that English dictionary better than anyone else in this world. And here I am leading communications for Maersk. Wow. <laughs> for a global company and coaching wow. executives on how to deliver key messages and media train and um, doing strategic communications and crisis communications and, you know, all things communications. And it came from that moment where I said to myself, I will never feel this feeling again. I would never be humiliated and not know what is being said to me and not only that but took it taking it a step further to where I wanted I didn't want anyone else to feel the way that I felt mm. so I think that's also in my my work and the things that I do in effective communications and training and and, and all of the uh, you know the, this type of coaching that I do at the back of my mind I don't want them to feel like they are not getting their message across because I know how frustrating that feels. When someone doesn't understand you or you don't understand them, communication is key for us to really transform something and to be able to create new things in the future. So it's so important to me that no one, number one, no one feels the way that I did. And number two, that they can actually communicate effectively with another human being and actually transcend more than it's more than words it's it's that experience and how you occur to others so yes it stemmed from a very dark space where i said and i almost screamed to the world like i will never be humiliated like this again and i will know every single world in that dictionary to now something 
much more beautiful and much more fulfilling because I do love what I do and I do believe that communication is the foundation to life and is the communicate and it's it's the foundation for everything that we do. Mm. If we don't communicate with one another and actually c- communicate in a way that it's effective and it's and it's inside another person's world, we can't solve the problems that we have today in the world and we can't solve even small problems that we have at a company level or at a family level or at a community level. So yeah, that was a long-winded answer to your question. No, it's I mean, what you're talking about speaks to why I'm doing this podcast in the first place is the fact that I don't think we don't communicate enough about the shared experiences that we have and and particularly the immigrant experience, which is replicated time and time and time and time again, no matter if you are, if it's in America or whether it be Syria or whether it be in Congo, whether it be in China, like these are experiences that happen to people daily and we seem to forget that and you know even more so once you know that next generation is assimilated and another generation assimilated we forget that there's at one point you moved somebody moved they had to deal with moving it was probably across to a different land they weren't used to and they and they made it work for the lack of better terms and all of the stories in the background and, and and you know how we all have very similar experiences and yet very different but we're all human beings, right? And so what you're talking about, about communication is speaks to a deeper sense of like why I, I, I wanted to do this podcast in the first place, but about the fact that we are part of a community and we should communicate what we deal with in the struggles and uh, being open to that, but also like, you know, absorbing it and, and making it's exhausting. Though. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. And it's, it's also it's a lot of you. Yeah. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. Um, so you came, you were 10, and then you decided to go back to Colombia. Why? Yeah. I wanted it to be a choice, but it ended up being something that I had to do. Mm. Um, by the time I turned 18, I still didn't have a residency. We weren't illegal, but we weren't legal. We were like in this limbo. So um, it was either paying full tuition as an international student or Rutgers University, or all the universities that accepted me, or it was taking a risk and going back to Colombia and starting my undergrad there, and then in the hopes that I could transfer back when my residency came through. It was a big risk, because we didn't wow. know if it was going to come through. So um, there's wow. a very likelihood that my different life would have still be in Colombia, and I would be a professional there, and I wouldn't have been able to come back. Hmm. That wasn't the case, thankfully. So uh, when I went back, you know, I started international business and uh, finance mm. in, in that university. It was like one of the top universities in the country. I didn't think I was going to get in. I got in and I made the choice because I didn't want to halt my studies. I didn't, I didn't feel like it was fair, you know, that I had to wait or that I had to put my parents in debt for the rest of their lives for me to get an education. So when I talked to my parents and we came to this decision, it was a very difficult one because it meant that they wouldn't be able to see me until I came back. Because if they left the country, they wouldn't be able to come back. And if I try to come back without, you know, on my own, right, and doing it my own way, um, there was a risk there too, right? That they would deny my visa or they would deny, you know, my entry because 
whatever reason. So it was a big risk. So I was alone for two years. Not alone, but I didn't see my parents for two years. And I didn't see my friends and everything that I've known and I had grown to love and I was raised by. And I was in a different country, essentially, because Colombia had become very distant to me and very foreign to me. Um, so it was like a double cultural shock mm. going back. It's very difficult. I would cry every day. You hadn't gone back since you left? Nope. Oh. So I had the English proficiency of a nine-year-old nine, you know, nine girl. Um, what's that? Sixth grade? Mm-hmm. Fifth grade? Going into a top university in the country, trying to write essays in Spanish. Um, I had a few classes in English, but it was extremely tough. So I would study for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. And I actually got really good grades, surprisingly. But mm-hmm. it was because of a lot of work. And my aunt, who checked every essay that I had, she coached me. She, I, I got myself into Spanish classes on the side. I mean, everything that I could to survive. And just to give you a taste of what that university was, I think only... 30 to 40 percent of students graduate with a degree at the end of the year because it's such a difficult program. Wow. It's like strenuous. I mean, I, God, not only was I crying because I was missing my family, but I was crying because of the studies (laughs) because how difficult it was. So while I was there, uh, I was there with the uncertainty that I may never come back. And I was 18 years old. So an 18 year life hasn't even formed yet your brain hasn't even formed yet it's still making new synapses and still trying to make meaning of life and what you're supposed to be doing and not doing so it was a very difficult period for me but it was extremely transformational and it's made me the human that i am today and it's why i'm so resilient and why i look at life differently than others i think and it's because there was point in time in my life that I really didn't know I was going to be able to come back and see my parents Mm. and it took a lot for me but I made it and then all of a sudden in two years we got a letter saying that our immigration papers had finally come through wow and that I could come back so that's when I came back Mm -hmm. and we applied for our residency and we got it and then five years later I got my citizenship so what type of visa were you on before for when you were from 10 to 18? So my parents came here with a student visa. Okay. Yeah. And then we did, and then immediately we did the application for residency through work permit. Uh-huh. The work permit does take a really long, a long time, time. But it took longer because of 9-11. Everything happened, you know, within yeah. that time. So our, our papers were, our case was being transferred from Philadelphia to Newark to another place. And I mean, it was it was 15 mm. years in the waiting. Thir- no, 13 years in the waiting before I went and decided to go back to Colombia and, and start my studies. So that's what I did. I didn't wait. If I would have waited, DACA would have come into effect two years later. But I would have lost those two you years. You would have lost those two years. Yeah. So, and I didn't want that. Mm. I didn't want to do that. So you made these, you know choices to help propel your career and your life you uh, weren't able to see your family for two years and luckily your citizenship became a possibility for you it was your my residency residency became our application for residency Mm -hmm. uh, was admitted Admitted. Mm -hmm. and then we finally were able to move forward with the process goodness so it was you and your parents both of you going through that whole process 
the three of us. So they stayed here working, mm -hmm. sending me money to pay for my school. And I was there okay. going to school. And so you're in Bogota. It's two years. Are you making friends? Are you not making friends? I, um, I made friends. I'm still my best friend, Juan Felipe, visits me here. Mm -hmm. And we still talk, you know, all mm -hmm. the time. He's an amazing human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still stay in touch with some people from there. Um, I did have a boyfriend, right? I have to thank him a lot, you know, for keeping me sane and for anchoring me and being a family to me when I didn't have my family. And um, yeah, I, I think I got adjusted very quickly, but the sense of missing my home, like that wasn't home. Mm. Colombia wasn't home to me anymore. And that's what happened to a lot of children that came to this country when they were very little. And now they're being asked to go back home and being deported. I mean, that's not their that's home. That's not their home. Colombia wasn't my home. I don't want to go back. I mean, I'm going to go on vacation and I'm going to go visit my family. And I always joke that I'm probably going to retire. But I don't think I'm even going to retire in Colombia, to be honest. I really love it here because this is my home. New Jersey is horrible as some people may think it is and, <laughs> and some people try to leave new jersey mm -hmm. i actually love new jersey and i don't want to leave i love it here because this, this is my home this is where i grew up and this is what i've always known and i've always loved despite visiting so many countries around the world mm -hmm. despite living in colombia for two years i wouldn't change it for a thing mm -hmm. but that's why i think it's so unfortunate that right now you know some of these families are being asked to leave especially children that didn't have a choice in being here and all they know is this country and all they want to do is stay and contribute to society and make an impact and i'll tell you very briefly about my cousin my cousin is one of the daca recipients and right now he's uh, finishing his studies to be in criminal justice and all he wants to do is contribute to society and be a homicide detective and, you know, in order to be a homicide detective, he has to uh, become a policeman first. But in order to be a policeman, you, as a DACA recipient, you are not allowed to take any public service or public, you know, type of role in communities. So, I mean, here he is, came here when he was six years old, doesn't know anything else besides the United States, wants to contribute to this country and loves this country and would love to serve this country if he could, but he can't because he's a DACA recipient. So what do you do? It's just not fair. And what is he, what, what's the situation that he has as a DACA recipient right now? Like, is he still just waiting for residency? Like, what are the new changes in I, legislation? I don't know. I actually mm. don't know what the next steps are. Um, all I know is that even if I'm sure he's going through the process right for gaining your citizenship but just like me it took 13 years because my parents started early mm -hmm. 13 years 13 years to get my residency so what is he going to do for 13 years right i mean yes he has an advantage with having a work permit and being able to drive but he wants to serve his country he wants to do a job that contributes to the community. So, and he's being denied doing that because of an immigration status. And, and what, I feel like this speaks to something deeper uh, as well as the fact that oftentimes immigrants is seen as causing issues or 
um, being criminals or being people who are taking the jobs or not wanting to serve. And obviously every situation is different and not every person wants to give back. But making that decision for an entire group of people who have impacted this, the fabric of this nation, which is built on the backs of immigrants, whether it be by choice or by force, I find really disheartening because it's like you're saying that every person is out to get you as opposed to realizing they came here for an opportunity and they, with that opportunity, they are adding to the GDP, the growth the of this country. You know, if you are a person who is working, you are adding to it. And maybe you're ill and, there's, and that comes with a whole different host of things uh, or issues or obstacles, but your presence is not taking away from, from America or from making this country grow or be better. And your cousin is an exactly an example of that. I feel more often times than not, those are the stories that you hear. And yes, there are people who are immigrants who are maybe not doing the best of things um, that are seen as criminal. But there's also natives people who are doing the same thing as well. And so it's really hard to be like, this, this grouping of people is doing this and it's affecting people in this way. It's generalization doesn't help you know we all move and go to places because we are looking for other opportunities and with that we do what we need to do to survive and there's something bigger to be said about what that government provides to help support those people as they are going through that struggle and that journey it's not easy it's not it's not easy to immigrate it's not easy to move somewhere it's the most stressful thing you can do in your life and even more so if you have a child and just send a child back to a place they do not know when their parents did whatever they could to get them out of there is yeah. very, very Especially because these families, just like mine, I mean, they mm -hmm. didn't come. I mean, I'm, I've told you, my parents didn't necessarily come because there's going to be more economic freedom here. Mm -hmm. They were well-established in Colombia. Mm -hmm. They fled because it was dangerous. They fled because they wanted safety for us and for our future families and for future generations. That's why they left. And... I'm not going to say that every single scenario is like ours and we contributed to exactly. society and exactly. you know, all of that. But I'm also not going to sit here and put labels on people without actually knowing them. I think everyone that, you know, that's why there is a law, but sometimes the law, laws that are passed are also made by humans that make mistakes. But it's our responsibility to also change them mm -hmm. and to speak up and to point when something is not is generalizing as you mentioned it's mm -hmm. generalizing an entire group of individuals and people uh, based on where they were born mm -hmm. and just because they were born there they're classified as something different mm -hmm. so yes there's a path to citizenship I mean I believe I'm, I condone every immigrant should go the legal way in the proper way just like everyone else you know should abide to the law is it much more difficult when you're from specific countries? Yes. Absolutely. So there is that as well. Um, also, Colombia has definitely a rap. It definitely has a history and a story that with all the movies and documentaries that came out, <laughs> everyone now just sees that and they see yeah. Escobar and they see all these things. But before that, like I know as a person moving to South America, everyone's like, oh, where are you going to go? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go here. Um, Argentina, Colombia is an option. Brazil. And I was like, oh, Colombia. Like, is it safe? 
I, re- I kicked myself in the shins that I didn't go to try to move there for a period of time. Not to say that it, every part of Columbia is safe, but it was definitely a place that I could have moved. And there's a lot of different stigmas that come with Colombia and Brazil and whatever country. And it's sad that that will rule somebody in their decisions. But for any person in the time that you went and also during 9-11, like that, whatever people are seeing in the news and they're looking at you and they're talking to you and you're not in Miami, you're in, you're in Jersey. Like what are people are must have just been like, oh, what is that like? Like, like do you speak English? Like. <laughs> Like, I just, I can only imagine. Yeah. I could only imagine. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm poke fun of it, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, that's all you can do, right? I poke fun of mm-hmm. it, because I see, you know, do I have my own unconscious bias around certain countries? Yeah, of For course. sure. Uh, I think it's funny that people think that, you know, still cartels and there's still, you know, all this stuff going around, because it did go around for 40 years. There was mm-hmm. a civil war for 40 years, and it's one of the reasons why I'm here. Exactly. So everyone fled the country, and a lot of professionals and a lot of working families left during that that era. Are some going back? Yes, because mm-hmm. it's now a prosperous country. I mean, GDP is double-digit growth. Investments are flowing in left and right from American and European companies. It's really a different world and a different place, and I'm just so happy to see just the economic development and the well-being of people and the fact that we don't have a war anymore i think that's the biggest piece the fact that there's no bombs going off left and right anymore um and people being kidnapped because that was that's terrifying well my great-grandfather was kidnapped for two years two years Mm -hmm. so from my my cousin's side so the cousin that i told you about Mm -hmm. his grandfather was kidnapped for two years by the las farc and they had to pay ransom for his release. And they almost went bankrupt because of it. So we, we got it all. We got it all. But I mean, yeah, it was there. It was horrible. It's not there anymore. Um, I, now I look left and right and all of my friends want to go backpacking through Colombia. So <laughs> I did it. I know. I know. And, and they're I... all asking me for tips and they're saying how wonderful it is and how beautiful and the amazing food and the people and they want to live there. And I'm like, isn't yeah, it so crazy? I'm like, it, it's, it is a beautiful country. It is a beautiful country. And, and I amazing. know that for like, um, <laughs> what I've noticed, even with like Ghana now, the GDP is growing and everyone's going there and there's Afro cello and all this stuff. And my parents laugh. They're like, Oh, go back to Ghana. Like I remember, when I was leaving and it was struggling and you know we left because we were going to go back at some point my mom was definitely not trying to go back my dad's like I'm going to go I'm going to get educated in the states I'm going to go back Mm. he's yet to go back to live he just recently went back in January and my mom was like this is great to visit but I'm not trying to live there Mm. Uh, but it has changed so much and it's so funny because when I was in college people were doing like oh, I'm going to be in Ghana for like a semester doing like a study abroad. I was like, Ghana, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, that's a thing now. Um, and it is because it is definitely a place where you can do that and you can um, live a life and sustainable life. And it's just interesting to see so the big pull to go to Ghana now. Just like, I'm sure you're sitting here like, I was trying to backpack through Colombia. Like, seriously, I, I left that country and I went to school there. I know what it's like and I'm not trying to live there now. Um, do you go back to Colombia a lot? Every two years. Okay. That's a decent amount though. Yeah. And do you go for like a week or two? I love it there. I love it there. I just don't, I don't want to live there. Yeah. But I love it Fair there. enough. Yeah. 
Um, and would you say that a lot of your family lives in Bogota or do they live in other parts of it? Bogota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of what you've gained, which you've talked about, would you ever, we didn't live in America, where else would you live? South Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know where you want to be, so. I, I just travel a lot. Mm-hmm. I've lived abroad. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere like home. Yeah. This is home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anything else you would like to touch on in terms of perception of yourself in comparison to others? Um, how you saw yourself then versus now? No, I think what I just want to say, you know, to anyone that listens to this podcast, right, when it comes you decide out. to release yeah. it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and spill, you know, all of this wonderful, wonderful sharing with everyone um, is that, you know, we stop looking at what makes us so different and unique because at the end of the day, when we start creating those small buckets, it's when we start looking and comparing each other to what we believe is a standard or what we believe is right or what we believe is wrong. But in reality that we just all look at ourselves as just human beings. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's a human. It's just, it's so silly when we start trying to differentiate ourselves into I'm Colombian and I'm white and I'm a woman Mm -hmm. and I'm this and I'm that. It just doesn't matter yeah it really doesn't matter and and that and, and that's what you know there are these buckets and, and our society places us in these buckets but we also put ourselves in these buckets because we forget that we are humans yeah if we put our humanity first and then what i what we identify ourselves as i think we will be able to solve a lot of problems and also communicate in terms of understanding that we're all there so it's just you're speaking exactly to the point of this podcast you've had many comments thank you so much and thank you and I appreciate everything thank you Kyra for having me of course a pleasure this story hits on so many cylinders for me it's deep it's authentic and it's by an inspirational human being to me my landmark coach Catherine who I dedicate you know, this episode two, who inspired me to continue with this podcast, who's inspired me to lead with this podcast, and has also been open enough to share her story, which is very, very common. It's very, very real. And it's very, very important to hear. It speaks to the fact of if you are an immigrant, if you're a person of color, if you're non-white, this, the opportunities you go for are that much harder. Um, and that much harder to obtain and she says it in such an eloquent way while telling the very intricate story of her family members it's one that just puts a smile on my face from every story that I've watched as a kid of a Latino family and making it work generation after generation so thank you Catherine thank you Landmark thank you all those who inspire me to keep asking the question and keep sharing with listeners the trials, the joys and successes of an immigrant, of a person of color, of all those who work that much harder to get what they need to get.